you've heard this story before. God is fulfilling his promise to us and sending a savior. He is showing himself faithful. He is showing us grace and mercy by sending his own son. What a love that is. It's a love that should change us. It's a love that demands a response. How will you respond to the story? All right, it has been a crazy morning. Let me tell you a little bit what's happened. Uh, we start our first service this morning at 8.30, and Jason Henson started that service by praying, and halfway through his prayer, boom, everything just went dark in here. And the only thing we had were the little generator lights that, that we have. So we decided to keep going. So the orchestra was here at 8.30, and they played, and we sang some Christmas hymns and carols. And uh, then uh, I got up and preached. By that time, our team, awesome team here, they kicked in. They had some battery-powered lights up, and they had a speaker and a microphone here that was plugged into a generator and then plugged into a truck and then plugged into a generator. The generator went down and it was crazy chaos. But you know, the church for like a couple of millennia has been worshiping without electricity. So, hey, we can do it too. We figure it out. So we actually had a great, a great morning and then we baptized five people at 945 under battery powered lights again. And I was just yelling over there. So maybe people could hear me. And uh, it was, it's actually been a, a great morning, and uh, almost, almost a little bummed that the power came back on, to be honest with you. I was looking forward to preaching in the dark again. When, when you have an anomaly like that, people are kind of a little bit more in tune to what's going on, and so um, it's good. All right, well, uh, next Sunday is going to be my final Sunday with you as your pastor, and what I want to do today and what I want to do next Sunday as we get into this Christmas season is I want us to look at the first chapter of Matthew. And I want us to do that in two messages. Today, uh, we're going to look at uh, the genealogy of Jesus. And some of y'all are like, I wish the power would go back off. I could take a nap. You know, the genealogy, that's, that's boring. It, 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 the genealogy is not boring and it is not irrelevant by any means. But we're going to look at verses 1 to 17 today. And then next Sunday, we're going to look at verses 18 to 25 when Matthew focuses on Joseph and Mary and the huge change of plans in their life that he had for them. And I thought that would be appropriate because God has kind of thrown us a big change of plan, <laughs> uh, right, as, uh, at our church as I'm going to be stepping away uh, into a new role. So if you'll take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 1, before we kind of dive into the genealogy, a story happened uh, a while back some years ago that I think is kind of a good picture of what Matthew is, is going to be telling us in his gospel of not only who Jesus is, but why Jesus came. And I think you see the who he is and the why he came even, even within this genealogy. And I think it's why Matthew starts his gospel, or partly why he starts his gospel with the genealogy. The story I'm talking about is in the country of Morocco. Some years ago, uh, the, the king of Morocco, uh, uh, Muhammad VI, he and his wife... Uh, had a daughter, had a princess, royalty. And uh, to celebrate the birth of his daughter, he was a very proud dad like anybody would be, uh, to celebrate instead of handing out cigars, 
he actually released something like 8,000 prisoners out of jail, just set them free. And then he took several other thousand prisoners, he reduced their, their prison sentence. And so at the birth of his daughter, the birth of his child, he had all these people that were set free. Kind of a really a unique way to celebrate that and, and a statement of goodwill uh, towards his people. If you think about it, that's kind of what the birth of Jesus is about. Through the birth of this child who would, born of a virgin, would live a sinless life, would give his life on a cross, would rise from the dead, is going to come again. Um, because of Jesus, there's untold numbers of people that are also set free because of what he did on their behalf and because of their faith in him and what he did. And I think it's to that aim that Matthew is getting when he starts his gospel, his narrative here, with a genealogy. Um, now, one of the things I think we need to remember and think about with a genealogy is with Matthew starting with all of these generations here, what he's doing for us is he, he's describing not just a birth of Jesus, but he's really kind of pointing to the coming of Jesus, if you will. You know, we all know, we probably have it even in our family history, the unexpected pregnancy, right? You know, you met somebody, it's like, I was an oops, right? right? But this is not an unexpected birth by any means. As we'll see in a little bit here, this is something that, that God has known about since time eternal, obviously, but even in the pages of Scripture, we go all the way back to the beginning of the Old Testament in these opening chapters of Genesis, and you can see this, this, this pointing, this looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. So this, this has not caught God by surprise. It, it, it's not a surprise in the Scripture that Jesus is born. And so Matthew gives us then this genealogy to kind of describe that. Now, uh, let's, we're not going to read all the names, of the gene, names in the genealogy, but let's just kind of look at it here, and particularly look at the first verse and the last verse of this passage. So Matthew 1, 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he kind of pulls out David and Abraham as these kind of big milestones, these big markers. And when you start in verse 2, the names are probably very familiar to you, right? Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. But then when you get to verse 3, and you start seeing some names like Perez and Zerah, and you get to Hezron, and the names started getting a lot less familiar. But then you get down to verse 5, and it kind of picks up again. You know, you've heard of Rahab and Boaz and Ruth and David. But then it starts getting a little less familiar after Solomon in verse 7, and you have all the kings of the, 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 the divided kingdom and all that stuff. And then you get down to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And, oh, by the way, I forgot that they have the slides up and running. We, uh, this, is, this is the birth I was talking about, Muhammad VI and his wife and his daughter. Um, I forgot that we had those uh, up and running. 
All right, so what do we make of a genealogy? Because I think sometimes when we read this, we go, oh, it's boring, it's a lot of hard to pronounce names, or this is irrelevant. Don't, don't ever look at a genealogy in the scripture and think it's irrelevant. Um, it's very, very important. And so what I want to do is I want to just take this genealogy and Matthew's placement of it in his gospel, and let's just make some observations. And let me tell you that I've stolen a couple of these observations today from Tim Keller's book, Hidden Christmas. By the way, if you, if you, it's a great book. It's a good Christmas gift. It's a good reminder of the meaning of Christmas and good exposition to these texts in the Gospels. It's by Tim Keller called Hidden Christmas, and uh, I encourage you to get it. So when we read this then, uh, a couple of observations. Here's the first one on the screen, okay? The first observation is this, that the Gospel is good news, not just good advice. Now, what, what do you mean by that, Todd? Let's just unpack that for a second. And the first thing I want to do to kind of unpack that, the first thing I want us to realize is Matthew, by starting his gospel with a genealogy, is really pointing to the historicity of Christ. Uh, notice that Luke kind of, Luke and Matthew kind of, kind of do some things in inversion here. Uh, Matthew starts with Abraham and goes, goes, goes forward to Jesus. Luke starts with Jesus and goes backward to Adam in his genealogy. Luke takes the first couple of chapters and tells you the story, right? He tells you about Mary and Elizabeth and tells you about the angels and the shepherds and gives you all that stuff. And then he hits you with the genealogy. But Matthew, before he gives you any of the details about the wise men and Joseph and Mary and all that, Matthew hits you first with the genealogy. Now, that partly could be because Matthew is writing to Jews, and he's really trying to establish this genealogy, who the identity of Jesus is. Luke, writing to Gentiles, which probably get you the story first, and then get to the genealogy. But the fact that Matthew gives you the genealogy right out of the chute... To me, in part, is Matthew pointing to the, the historicity of Jesus. Now, you notice that Matthew's gospel does not start with the phrase, once upon a time. Matthew's gospel does not start with the phrase, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> By the way, when you hear the phrase, once upon a time, you know what's coming next, right? Fiction, fairy tale, myth, legend, folklore. When you hear a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, you know that what's about to come is fiction. This stuff didn't really happen. And I probably burst the bubble of some people that I have met that I think actually do think Luke Skywalker, once upon a time, was a really real guy. He wasn't. Now, listen, friends, we cannot underestimate the importance that Christianity is something that is rooted and grounded in history. What I am reading in the pages of this book is not a myth, it is not a legend, it is not fiction, it is not folklore. What I am reading in this book is really historical. The names of the places all throughout the Bible are really real places. In fact, through archaeology, we have discovered most of where these places are. The people that I read all through the books, of the pages of the book of the Bible, uh, these are real people. And so when we deny the historicity of Jesus, right, that Jesus was a real person and that the things that he did were real, and that goes for all of the scripture, when we deny that, we really start getting into some shaky, shaky ground. 
You know, just a couple of weeks ago, I was very disappointed to hear an apologist, uh, a, a Christian guy that's into apologetics, uh, state at a conference that we, we really can't say that Adam and Eve are real, literal people. Now, I'm kind of simple and dumb, but I, I still yet don't understand how if Adam and Eve are not real, literal people, how the gospel really works. If Adam and Eve are just kind of placeholders to describe kind of the theistic evolution that God created the world and then he let it all kind of come on by naturalistic processes through evolution and Adam and Eve aren't real people but we kind of had the caveman thing and Cro-Magnon and all that and then pop, here we go with humans. Uh, Where and when does sin really enter into the world? And if Adam and Eve aren't real people, and, and, and the whole issue, and this is even becoming more common today, even within evangelicalism, to deny the historicity of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And you say, well, you know, the whole creation account, we're not really sure exactly how that went down. It's just kind of there to kind of help us get going. And then Adam and Eve weren't real people. That's, they're just kind of mythological to kind of represent uh, humanity. And then did Noah really build that boat? I mean, that's an awful big boat, and that seems really ridiculous to have built a big boat. And come on, it's ridiculous to think that God flooded the entire world. He probably just flooded one little region if he even did that at all. And then that Tower of Babel thing, that's really crazy and ridiculous to think that that's how all the people became, you know, their language different and all that. Here's the problem, gang. When you deny the historical accuracy or the reality of these events in Genesis, you, you, you kind of don't know when to sh- where to shut the gate. If Adam and Eve aren't real and Noah and the flood aren't real and the Tower of Babel's not real, then you kind of get into this and Jonah and the whale, pff, that one's certainly not real. And the miracles of the prophets, and then, then you just don't know when to shut the gate. And then we'll say, well, the virgin birth wasn't really real, and the bodily resurrection of Jesus wasn't really real. And, you know, and listen, if, if Jesus wasn't born of a virgin and did not rise bodily from the dead, let's just all put our Bibles in the trash can and go eat lunch. Because none of this Christianity thing works. So when I say it's good news, not just advice, this is solid, historical. Jesus really existed. He really is who he says he is. He did what he said he did. Now, let's just think about this whole difference between good news and advice. Okay, now look at the statement on the screen. Let's just go one step deeper with this. So here's the difference between advice or counsel and uh, news. Okay, here it is. Advice is counsel about what you must do. News is a report about what has already been done. Advice urges you to make something happen. News urges you to recognize something that has already happened and to respond to it. Advice says it is all up to you to act. News says someone else has acted. And, you know, Keller in his book gives this great illustration of this, just to try to understand. What's the difference between news and counsel or advice? What's the difference? All right, here's a little hypothetical situation. Let's say that you're the citizen of a city, okay? And your city is, is, is under the imminent threat of being invaded by, by an army that's coming your way. So coming out here, coming your way to invade your city is an army, Now, what you need in that situation is you need advice. 
You need military counselors, right? And you need people to come on here, and you need people to tell you as citizens of the city, all right, here comes the invading army. These are the things you need to do. Get busy. Get to work. Here's where you dig the trenches. Here's where you build the earthworks. Up here is where you put the snipers. Over here is where you put the tanks and the mortars and all of this. And then the counselor, the advisor, tells you what to do, and everybody gets busy doing it. But let's say in this context... The army is coming to invade your city, but then a very strong, powerful king intercepts this army before it gets to your city, and this strong, powerful king defeats this army. They are no longer a threat. And now you don't need military counselors. What you need is you need messengers to tell you what's happened. And now you don't need to, build, to dig trenches and you don't need to build earthworks and put up the snipers and the tanks and the howitzers. And you don't need to do all of that because the enemy's been defeated. What you need is you need the news to tell you what has already been done. You need not military advisors, but you need messengers. By the way, the word in, 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 in the New Testament for the messenger, the angel, angelos, the angels. And at the birth of Jesus, this is what God has sent to tell us, the messengers, the angels, that Jesus has been born. So when we read the Christmas narrative, there, there, there is no moral to the story. This is not some kind of fairy tale fable. This is Matthew with his genealogy telling you the facts of what has happened. Now, you understand what he's doing without advice and news? Okay, how, how does all that really play out? Well, well, think about this. You know, the founder of all the other world religions, all they really do is give advice, don't they? Muhammad and Buddha and all these people. What do they say? When they came, they said to all their people, they said, hey, right over here is the way. And here are the things that you need to do to be right with God, to, to find yourself on the way. You need to meditate. You need to avoid this. You need to do these five pillars. You need to do all this kind of stuff. And so all of these founders of these world religions came and said, here's the things you need to do. The way is right over here. But Jesus comes, and Jesus is radically different. Jesus does not come on the scene and say, hey, everybody, the way is over here. Jesus comes on the scene and says, I am the way. And Jesus does not say, if you do these five things, or you do these 10 things, or you avoid these 20 things, then you'll be right with God. What does Jesus do? Jesus comes and he does the things on our behalf. So the gospel is not just advice. It's good news to tell us what he has done for us. Now, do I do anything to be saved and right with God? No, I don't. I can't. But that doesn't mean that the good news shouldn't have a response. When those messengers come into the city and they tell the city, hey, you don't need to dig the trenches and build the earthworks and, and put the tanks out. The enemy has been defeated. Does everybody in the city hear that message and just go, oh, no, there's, there's a response. Yes, we're saved. Same thing for us. When we hear the message of the gospel of good news, the gospel means there's nothing I can do to be saved. Jesus has done all that is required on my behalf. But the response is my faith and obedience in him. And so 
the gospel isn't pointing me to all these things I have to do. The gospel is pointing me to the one who did all these things. Now, one step deeper, to me, there's this crazy irony in the, the narrative of Jesus' birth. That even though it's not a fairy tale, it actually meets the needs within us that are the same needs that make us love fairy tales. Let me explain. Why do you love fairy tales? Why do you love Disney? Why do you love all these stories about princesses and enchantment? And all? Why, why do we love all that? I'll tell you why. Because somewhere deep down inside of us, these are all things that kind of scratch an itch. Uh, who among us doesn't want to experience the supernatural? And the supernatural is all over the place in fairy tales. I would love to stand in front of a mirror and the mirror talk to me and tell me how pretty I am. I would love to look at this wicked, evil, terrible-looking person be transformed into something, someone beautiful. I would love to be loved in a way that was perfect and unconditional and eternal. Why do you love, this, why do you love the fairy tale Beauty and the Beast? I'll tell you why. Because you are enamored with the fact that there could be a love that could solve or cure your beastliness. What's the next one? Why do we love Sleeping Beauty? Because we are enamored that there could be a love that would wake us up from the stupor of life, the sleepiness of the drudgery of life. So do you understand the irony? You realize that the only thing that can give you all of these things, an experience with the supernatural, a perfect love that is eternal and unconditional, transformation, you realize the only thing that can give you these is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, it's very plain as day, this is not a fairy tale. Friends, we're all looking for that. Did you see the, the young lady the other day? Her, her father was a DFW area police officer who was shot and killed in line of duty. She spoke at his funeral. If you want to see it, it's a 90-second clip. It's on my social media stuff. You can find it. She speaks at her father's funeral. I can't even imagine doing that, first of all. But in, in this little 90-second clip, she, she says, you know, listen, I believe in justice, and when we do crimes, we, we, we need to face the consequences. But, but she says, she gets to the end of it, she basically says, you know, I want to spend time with my father's murderer, not to yell at him and scream at him and hate him, but to tell him about Jesus. Friends, the only thing that can produce that kind of grace and mercy and forgiveness in a human heart is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, this is the good news that we're looking for. Here's a second observation from this. I probably talked too long on that first one, but here's a second observation of this. The gospel is the demonstration of God's grace. 
Now, we look at the genealogy itself, all right? And, and we, don't, we probably don't catch this today in our context. We don't understand all this. But this genealogy is really kind of unheard of. By the way, this is like a resume. Genealogies in ancient times was a way of someone saying, this is who I am. I am this because I'm related to all these people. All right, we know for a cold, hard fact that a number of ancient rulers doctored, redacted, edited their genealogies to take the hated or controversial people out. But we know for an absolute fact that Herod the Great, who's talked about in the gospel and the birth narratives, Herod the Great doctored his genealogy. And the controversial people he had removed, redacted from his genealogy because they were scoundrels or whatever, which is kind of ironic because he was a massive scoundrel himself. And so when you read Jesus' genealogy in ancient times, you might think, okay, this is going to be kind of doctored. This is only going to include the famous people, the really moral people, because after all, we are talking about the resume of Jesus, the Son of God. So you better really make this thing clean. You better really make this thing perfect. And I mean, lo and behold, right out of the chute, we don't get until, it only takes to get to verse 3, and uh uh-oh. Judah is the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Matthew could have cleaned that up. Matthew could have just side-skirted that. But when he includes, includes Perez and Terah and Tamar, Matthew is forcing us to remember and kind of relive a very sordid tale in the Old Testament. Do you remember it? Here's Tamar, despondent that she's not having any children. She dresses herself up. She stands by the side of the road. When she knows, right when her father-in-law, Judah, is going to come right by her. She seduces him. He sleeps with her. And then, boom, you're not, you're not two verses into the genealogy of Jesus. And what do you have in Jesus' genealogy? Incest. Crazy. By the way, I, I was just looking at that, making a little note. Jesus is descended from Perez, not Zerah. But including Perez and Zerah and including Judah and Tamar, Matthew, by doing this, is basically telling you, hey, I'm not holding back any punches. I'm telling you how it is. This is an ugly knot in the family tree of Jesus. Keep going. You read the whole genealogy, there's five women in there. Right? Mary's kind of one that's implied in there. And then so you got these four women in his genealogy, five, four. Three of those four are Gentiles. They're not even Jews. And one of those Gentiles is Rahab, who's not just a, gen- a run-of-the-mill Gentile. She's a Canaanite. And she's a what? She's a prostitute. Man. So here we go. <laughs> We're not five verses into Jesus' genealogy, and what do we have? Let's keep score. We have incest and prostitution, and the hits just keep coming. Now you come to verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon, and he could have just left it at that. But he gives us this detail. And who is Solomon? Well, he is the product of David and the wife of Uriah. Notice that he doesn't even name Bathsheba by name. Oh, yeah, that that lady that's the wife of Uriah. By the way, I have read commentaries on this that said, oh, the reason he doesn't name Bathsheba is because he's kind of embarrassed about Bathsheba because of the adultery thing. (laughs) What? He just named Tamar and Rahab. 
He's not embarrassed by that. And by the way, some people looked at it and said, wow, what a slap to, what a slap to Bathsheba here that she's not named. Uh-uh, uh-uh. This is not a slap to Bathsheba. This is a slap at David. Because he could have said, and David had Solomon, and then Solomon had Rehoboam. But what does he do when he says the wife of Uriah? What does he say? He says, by the way, just wanted to let y'all know, that David guy that y'all all think so great and high, high and holy and all that, adulterer. So six verses in, in Jesus' genealogy, what do you get? You got incest, you got prostitution, you got adultery. By the way, unheard of to put women in a genealogy anyway. In this day and time, women had no legal standing. What were you trying to do with the genealogy? You were trying to prove inheritance rights and laws and all this stuff. So the whole thing's off the charts. But I want you to notice, y'all, watch this. In this whole how it's a demonstration of God's grace, look at me. You got the lowest of the low, you got the highest of the high. How does this thing start? Oh, hey, here's the genealogy of Jesus, and what are the two markers that he throws out? David and Abraham are two big heroes of the Old Testament. David was a man after God's own heart. David was the king. I mean, come on, doesn't get any higher than that. And do you all see what Matthew is doing here? Here's what he's doing. Ready? What he's basically saying is, What's on display in the genealogy of Jesus is, yeah, it's a lot of sordid things, and yeah, there's some great people, but the main thing at the end of the day is what's on display in the genealogy of Jesus is the grace of God, because what is he telling you with these names and these little details? What he's telling you is this. I don't care who you are. I don't care how bad you are. I don't care how immoral you've been. I don't care what a horrible, terrible person you've been and the horrible, terrible things you've done. Anybody, regardless of who they are, what their skin color is, what language they speak, how much money they've got, how much education they've got, if they killed someone, anybody that comes to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance of their sin will be saved by him. The lowest of the low. But then also, what does he say? With David and Abraham, even the highest of the high. Anybody can come to faith in Jesus, right? And apart from faith, same thing here. I don't care how good you are. I don't care all the moral things you've done. I don't care all the accolades you have. Unless you come to Jesus in faith and repentance, you're not saved either. The genealogy of Jesus just shows us that at the foot of the cross, there is truly a level ground. The worst person we think of the best person we think of, they all come to Jesus the same way, through faith because of his grace. So you see that great thing. Now, here's a third observation. Oh, here's a statement. So there is no one then, not even the greatest human being, who does not need the grace of Jesus Christ. And there is no one, not even the worst human being, who will fail to receive the grace of Jesus if there is repentance and faith. So here's a third observation. God may take his time, but he always keeps his word. Now look at this. You realize how, you realize how many years pass with all these generations? I mean, you get to verse 17, you got three sets of 14 generations. This is a long time. And so you think about it. Even from Malachi, the close of the Old Testament, to Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament, you got 400 years where there's no prophet 
400 years where the people basically don't hear from God. And so there's this incredibly long amount of time. But here's the thing. We go all the way back to that Old Testament. And we see these promises. In the Old Testament, we would have like 300 messianic prophecies about Jesus. And in the midst of all of that, people might have kind of given up on God. Said, hey, God, are you going to send the Messiah? I mean, come on, this has been a long time. We've been hundreds of years, thousands of years. But here's the reality. When God makes a promise, he's going to keep his word. But listen to me. Look at me. Really never will God work and fulfill his promises on your timetable. He's going to do it on his timetable. Remember what Paul told the Galatians in 4.4? In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Man, I love studying the Bible. This is so great. Born of a woman. Why does Paul kind of throw that inclusion of born of a woman? I mean, go all the way back to Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve, Eve's sin. And Adam and Eve, man, what, what do you got? You got the first time in the Bible something dies when God kills these animals, takes the skin from the animals, and covers the nakedness, we're in Oklahoma, the nakedness of Adam and Eve. And right there, the shedding of blood by these animals, the covering they provide to these humans, is a picture of the blood that Jesus would one day shed to cover our sin. And then he looks at the serpent, he looks at Satan, and what does he say to him? Right there in the garden, what does he say to him? He says, the one that you have struck on the heel today, kind of almost in a way, God says to Satan, hey, you know what? You may have won the battle today by leading these, these people to sin. But someone is coming who will be born from a human that is going to crush you in the head. You might have won the battle today, but you will lose the war. And so Paul says, one day here, born of a woman, this Jesus Christ, in the fullness of time, a word in the Greek, when you take the, you take the, you take the liquid all the way to the tip top of the cup, if you added one more drop of liquid, it would spill out. And right at the perfect time, at God's perfect timing, Jesus was born. Now listen to me, friend. Sometimes the holidays are hard. Some of us this year, we're going to face Christmas for the first time, and we're not going to have our spouse or our parent or our grandparent. I want you to remember something. What is the name of this baby that's being born? Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Friend, are you in pain this Christmas? Emmanuel, he's with you. Are you grieving? Emmanuel. Are you waiting? Emmanuel. Suffering, even rejoicing? Emmanuel. He's with you. And where do we come into play in this? You know, this story is not over. Because what does the, God, what is, what is the scripture teach us? One day, Jesus, who was born, who lived, who died, who rose from the dead, who ascended back into heaven... One day, Jesus is going to return. And when he returns, what's he going to do? He's going to consummate his kingdom, and he's going to make all things new. And there will be no more pain. There will be no more crying. There will be no grief or suffering. It will all be gone. And friends, we are waiting on that day, and we are waiting on God's timetable, not on ours.
So let's have faith. And here, 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 here's a little statement. You cannot judge God by your calendar. God may appear to be slow, but he never forgets his promises. Here's the last observation to give with you right here. What we learn from this genealogy is that God is our ultimate rest. God, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God has said up to this point in the scripture. Now, I'm going to show you something really super cool. You ready? One last little thing before we go to lunch. Here we go. Verse 17. Keep score with me. Watch this. He says, now all the generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations. And then we go from David to the Babylonian deportation. We have another 14 generations. And then from the Babylonian deportation to the birth of Jesus, we have another 14 generations. Now, watch me. Ready? Uh, I'm not very good at math, but I can do this. You got three sets of 14 generations. So let's take three 14s and let's divide it. And what do you have? You have six sevens. There are six sets of seven generations. Now, friends, in the Bible, what is the number of completion? Seven. Do you understand that by Matthew giving us this little mathematic detail, 14, 14, 14, you understand that when Jesus Christ is born, he is the beginning of of the seventh seven. Does it get any more perfect than that? The seventh set of seven generations starts with the birth of Jesus. What have we learned in our study of Hebrews this year? Ain't no thing, person, ideology, religion that's greater than Jesus. He fulfills it all. He is our ultimate rest. And he is the one to whom we give our faith, our life, our obedience. Let's pray together. Father, how we thank you so much for this genealogy of Jesus. I hope today, Lord, we have learned that a genealogy like this is not boring or irrelevant, but actually quite the opposite. We see these amazing truths in this passage of Scripture about who Jesus is and why Jesus came. And so, Father, thank you that the gospel today is not just counsel, it's not advice, it's not telling us what we need to do to be right with you. But the gospel tells us what you have done through your son Jesus on our behalf. And yes, Lord, there is a response of faith and obedience, yes. But we understand, Lord, that obedience is not the cause of our salvation. It's the result of that. And so thank you, Lord, that in this genealogy we see, we see Jesus' family, warts and all. We see all the knots on the family tree. And Lord, what that tells us is there's a place for us There's a place for me, even with all the skeletons in my closet, even with all the horrible things I have said and done, even against God and the church. Anyone who comes to faith in Christ, repentance of their sin, and faith in him, believing in him, can have eternal life. And thank you, Lord, for this lesson 
And maybe we've been born in church and gone to church our whole life and we're good moral people. That doesn't save us either. But all of us, good and bad alike, have to repent of our sin and come to faith in you through Christ. And so thank you, Lord, for that reminder today. And thank you that on display here, Lord, is a reminder that you are working everything in human history. You are working everything in our lives according to your timing and your plan. And one day all of that will be fulfilled, all of it, in the person of Jesus Christ and when he returns to this earth. And so, Lord, may we be patient, keep our perspective on you and your timing. And so we thank you, God. Thank you for sending Jesus to this earth. In his name we pray. Amen.